Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. And Denise, we have our lovely, best beloved community connection show this week. Don't you like this show as much as I do? I do because when we usually get feedback from this, people say, oh my gosh, I had a similar question to that. I think this one casts a wide net and it reaches a lot of people with the, the questions and concerns and stories that come through. I do too. And it's just so nice to hear from our listeners. You know, on my other podcast, Psychic Teachers, Deb and I are getting ready to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. So we were talking on the phone the other day and she was like, all right, how do you want to like run this show? And, and I said, well, I think we should just reflect back to the beginning and what it was like. And, and so I was just making some notes this morning before you and I started recording. And, and you know, it's, it's funny, in the beginning when I started podcasting, I didn't really believe anyone was listening. <laughs> did you ever have that feeling like no one's going to tune into this oh I still do yes <laughs> and the beauty of that is I wasn't nervous at all I was like oh it's me and Deb talking on the phone and so often when you and I do this it's me and Denise talking on the phone but then you get feedback from listeners and you're like oh my god people are actually listening to us mm -hmm. and then it makes me nervous I still get nervous before every show a little bit oh me too or, and then I get to edit. So then I say, oh, that's true. that might it need to be just beautiful. taken right out of there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's just dive in because we have some great questions and stories. Do you want to share the first one? Sure, I'd love to. Dear Samantha and Denise, I've been feeling pretty down lately for a few reasons. Winter blues mixed with reoccurring depression, a need to withdraw and spend a little too much time alone, and generally just not feeling great about myself. Over the last year or two, I've been slowly going through some type of spiritual awakening and at times have found it hard to balance the demands of this with my real life here in the, the carbon world. I turned 30 this year. I'm not greatly fulfilled in my job and I'm unsure what my path is in this sense. And after a couple of failed relationships, my romantic life seems to have pretty much be on hold for a couple of years. Although I do try and stay positive, I feel as if I'm waiting for something all the time, and this has taken its toll just lately. When I listened to the December Community Connections episode, I was surprised to hear the story about the Miraculous Mary Medal, as although I am not any particular religion, I have recently been feeling drawn to Mary and Blessed Mother, Goddess-type energy. After listening to the podcast around a week ago, I felt inspired to visit a local cathedral, which has a chapel dedicated to Mary. I sat in front of her statue and spoke to her, inviting her into my life. I must say within a day or two, the weight of all I had been feeling for weeks definitely started to lift. Since then, I've held on to your advice that when you invite the Blessed Mother into your life, she'll show you that she's around. Today, less than a week later, I took a walk around my local neighborhood. I finished my coffee and was just about to turn to go home when I felt like carrying on walking. I ended up walking much further than I had intended and came across a charity shop. I think you guys call them a Goodwill store in the U.S. I went in to browse and what did I find? Not only one, but three Miraculous Mary medals. I felt sure this was a sign and purchased all three. One to keep by my front door, one to keep in the box with my tarot cards and crystals, and one to carry with me. I walked home with a huge smile on my face, sure this was a sign. I wanted to share this with you. Thank you so much for the podcast and giving me a space where I can be myself and not feel embarrassed by the things I believe and experience. Lots of love. 
Oh, love that. Me too. There is no damn way that's not a sign. That's fabulous. Oh, no. That is just touched my heart. I know. Me too. Because that's how that's how the Blessed Mother works. But if anyone listening to this is like, all right, Samantha, we're not all Catholic like you, so pipe down about the Mary thing. Check out this book that Asia Suler recommended to me called The Way of the Rose. And it's about connecting with the divine feminine through the rosary. And that book talks about how People have been, pl- have been praying the rosary since well before we knew of a virgin mother, that it's this universal concept of connecting to the divine feminine. So when I say Mother Mary, you know, to a non-Christian, I'm not saying it's Mother Mary. Do you know what I mean? It's like a symbol of our universal mother. Right. It, and it can be the earth mother. It can be Gaia. It's where you put your focus when you're doing the repetitive work with the beads so it may be mala beads it may be rosary beads but it's that repetitive connection with that feminine energy and this isn't about being male female non-binary you know how you identify it's none of that this is about a nurturing kind loving supportive protective energy that we can all tap into it's connecting to your true mother right and, and I think it's just such a beautiful thing to experience. I emailed him back because this message really touched my heart. I told him to check out two books that I'd like to recommend to everyone. I've probably mentioned them before on the show. But one is called The Miracle Detective uh, by Randall Sullivan. He used to write for the, or might, maybe still does, for the Rolling Stones uh, magazine, was not a believer. And he was set out to do an article on a woman in... I think Arizona, who was seeing Mary. And he kind of set out to do this story, like almost like a gag, like, yeah, right, what, what am I going to find here? And it changed his life. He went all over the world interviewing people who had seen the Blessed Mother and researching visions and experiences with her. And that grew into this book, The Miracle Detective, which turned into a TV show produced by Oprah, which didn't do well. And I, I could tell you why, but we don't have time for that. But it, I hope they bring it back in a, in a different format. The other book I'd love to recommend is called Looking for Mary by Beverly D'Onofrio. Uh, she wrote that famous book, Riding in Cars with Boys. And her experience is so similar to our listeners. She just started collecting Mary stuff. Like she'd go into a used shop and would come home with a Mary statue and she had long before turned away from the Catholic Church and did not believe in really anything that the church taught. And yet she couldn't walk away from Mary. And the book is about how reconnecting with this mother source changed her life. She ended up moving to Mexico just to be closer to Guadalupe. Wow. Yeah. That's a commitment. I know. It's a, it's a fascinating, fun, and engaging read. So I, I really recommend those two. And I really invite our, our listeners to try this in their own lives. When, when I first read Looking for Mary, you know, I had never lost my connection to Mary. But reading her synchronicity stories and all the cool things she experienced, I was like, oh, that's such a great idea. And at the time, my really good friend was renovating her house and doing all that cool stuff I don't know how to do. Like she'd take me to all these used and salvaged stores and find old windows and she'd turn them into works of art. You know, people like that. Mm -hmm. I wish I had that ability. So I was accompanying her to all these weird little stores I never went to. And before I leave the house, I'd say, 
I'm going to find something connected to Mary today. And damn straight, Denise, every single time I would. <laughs> it was just, and I live in a very non-Catholic town. Mm-hmm. Like I could see if I was back in Connecticut, you know, you can't walk five feet without seeing something connected to Mary. But in this town, which is mainly Protestants and, and all of that, um, it, you just don't see that. And yet every time I would ask, I would see it. Isn't that beautiful, though? Oh, speaking of not a beautiful story, just connected to my town, I have to tell such a sad story that's been weighing on my heart since yesterday. And you can cut this out if you want. But my daughter works um, at a restaurant, and one of the coworkers is a lesbian. And she waited on this table, an older couple. They were reading the Bible as they sat at the table. And she waited on them as bright and bubbly and positive as she always is. And when they left, she went up to my daughter and said, look at what they wrote on my receipt. I get this all the time. And on the receipt, they had writ- the couple had written, do you really think you're going to heaven living the way you are? Okay. I might have to cut this out. That pisses me right off. I know. I know. It was so shocking to think, I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't even have words for it. I was so upset. She is 17 years old, this young woman. And she's oh. already in that place where she's being, try, people are trying to take away her truth of who she really is. I wish people would just realize it doesn't make a damn difference what you choose. It really doesn't. You have to go through the same shit as far as relationships, as far as self-worth, as far, all those things. It's not any different. Just It's about allowing people to be true to who they are without feeling they need to defend, protect, explain. That's just bullshit. Well, I just really wish these people walking around with their Bibles would get off their high horse and look inside the, their own nasty heart. You know, your Bible is not your ticket to heaven. Your no. heart is. No, and And, that goes along with so much of what we say. You know, we're always constantly saying, raise the vibration. But really, really being kind, being compassionate, accepting people for who they are, helping people step up, those are the universal tenets of all the religions. I know. And it's another reason why I love the younger generation much more than the elderly one. Sorry to say that, but... It's oh, true. I'm not taking I, it personally. <laughs> I, no, well, you're not elderly. I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying it to any of our older listeners, you know, in their 70s and 80s, because I know I'm not speaking to them because they wouldn't listen to the show. But the younger they people might surprise are, you. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, someone holding around a Bible, writing that on some on some young girl's receipt, is not listening to this show. And I just feel like this younger generation, I don't think they would ever, it wouldn't even cross their mind to judge someone for being different. And damn it, that's not even different. No. It's really not. No. No. And we need to stop seeing it that way. But but it's also, my, my own personal opinion, it's part of this whole evolution that we're all riding the wave of right now. Yeah. We're moving in a new direction, energy, frequency, all the things, but truly where my I believe this in my heart we're becoming more united and I do too part of that is acceptance yep well I told you what my guides told me years ago that 
we are moving as a consciousness into a universal awareness where we're finally able to see love beyond the parameters of color, race, gender, creed, and that that's what a lot of this upheaval is about, but it's leading to something much more beautiful and real. Right. And the other thing is if you're spending all that time looking at somebody else's stuff, you have to look at your own. Exactly. Well, and I just want to say that Olivia said this, this young woman wasn't affected by it. It didn't ruin her night, that she just shrugged it off and was like, well, what can you do? Some people are like this. So she had a really good attitude about it. Okay, now this is the practical side of my brain. Did they leave her a decent tip? You know, I didn't ask. I should have asked okay. that. I should have asked that. I doubt it. I doubt it. Hmm. Olivia's learning so much by working in a restaurant. Like mm -hmm. a bunch of people will come in and she'll go, oh, they're probably not going to tip anything. And they end up leaving a 30% tip, you know, and right. then another group will come in and, and she'll go, oh, I bet they'll tip well, and she'll get like 10%. So mm -hmm. she's learning a lot. Okay, I'll go on to the next question. Okay. Hi, ladies. I love your podcast so much, but there's something that's bothering me, and I need to let you know. I hear in every episode the phrase, does that make sense? I encourage you to practice breaking the habit of saying this phrase. It comes off as devaluing what you've just been saying while simultaneously devaluing the other person's ability to say, can you clarify that? You make sense. Love and respect to you both. Okay, well, I love this message because, first of all, that is the nicest way I've ever read to offer a gentle criticism. Mm -hmm. Second of all, Denise and I are well aware that we say that phrase way too much. And since we got this email, we've been practicing not yeah. saying it so much. So thank you. Thank you. But it bothers me. I remember in school, wouldn't you, every professor had their own thing. Some would say, um, every other word. Some would like steeple their fingers and pace while talking. Every professor had their thing they would repeat. And it used to be so distracting to me. And as a teacher, I worked really hard not to have that repetitive thing in my, in my lingo. And damn it, I do. Okay, and another aspect of this is the, uh, again, personal stuff, the insecurity of sharing our truth and not knowing if it's someone else's truth. Yes. So you say something that comes through and it feels right and true to you. And I think as empaths, as sensitive as just human beings, there's that vulnerability. So we want the validation that someone else understands what we're presenting. Yeah, there's a quote from Carl Jung that I think epitomizes what we're trying to say. He says, loneliness does not come from having no people about one, but from being unable to communicate the things that seem important to oneself or from holding certain views which others find inadmissible. Oh, that's beautiful. I have always resonated with that quote because so often I'll be trying to talk to someone about one of my weird esoteric thoughts or my mystical concepts I've been ruminating about, and they don't understand it. And so I do feel a compulsion to say, does that make sense? Because so many of the big concepts I'm being given by my guides or my higher self don't make sense to me. And the only way I can make sense of them is to process them through talking or writing. So that is my 
my default is to say, does that make sense? <laughs> and sometimes it just feels like I'm talking around in circles. So then I'll ask for clarity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Lily agrees. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry she keeps barking. I'm oh, going okay. to get her a little treat while you read the next question. Oh, no worries. Uh, our next one says, hi, ladies. I'm in the process of listening to the most recent podcast on epigenetics. I have about 10 minutes left. My brain is exploding with how synchronistic this topic is to my life right now. I'm in the Trader Joe's parking lot after work writing this because I'm just so blown away and I need to tell you. I know this was a heavy topic to cover, but damn, it was so validating and informative. I'm going to listen to it again and again. I had a very difficult childhood and I avoided dealing with the pain for so long. When I became a mother, I had no choice but to face it. Thank you so much. These past few years have been tough, but so transformative. Thank you for being part of that for me. Have a wonderful evening. I'm going to finish the episode now and go to Trader Joe's by myself. <laughs> I love that. That's fun. And that was a, a heavy show. That was a very, and it dredged up a lot of stuff, I think, for you and I, but also for a lot of listeners. But fascinating topic. And so um, it. I, I find myself bringing that up in readings or in conversations with people. It seems sometimes we do a show and it links into what's going on in people's lives at the same time. Yeah, we got a lot of feedback like that. That's just kind of an example of just people wanting to say, thank you, this resonates with me. I needed to hear this. And it's so nice for Denise and I to hear that because sometimes we do these heavy shows and we're like, oh, we need to lighten it up, you know, with something different next week. But I do think those heavy shows need to be addressed and talked about. It's only in, in darkness that negativity can fester. You know, you got to bring it all out into the light. So I'm, I'm really glad that that show resonated with so many people. It also allowed people to get back in the driver's seat with not letting that be the definition of who they are or what their legacy is or how they have to live their lives. Yes, exactly. Okay, our next one says, I have a question for you ladies. Every day when I look at the clock, it's 111, 222, 333, 444, 555. It's insane actually. Daily, consistently. What the heck does this mean? This has been going on for a year now. Okay, so I think that whenever we see different numbers lining up like this, you know, so if you're seeing a, like 111 and then the next day 222 and then the next day, you know, you're seeing 555, that can often mean that life is going to start lining up for you. And it can be the universe's way of saying, get ready, get prepared and be focused and ready to receive. If you were just seeing like 1111, you know how a lot of people will see 1111 frequently mm -hmm. and you're not seeing the other repetitive numbers, it's just 1111, that can indicate a period of manifesting is beginning for you. If you just saw 555, that can mean positive change is coming to you. But I think when we see all the numbers lining up, it usually means that big things are getting ready to line up for you. Kind of like, you know, that quote, if you want your ship to come in, build a dock. Mm -hmm. I feel like the universe is trying to tell her to build a dock. Now, if you study sacred geometry, even if you're not a math person like I am, you can study sacred geometry. I would recommend the Flower of Life books. I would say his name, but I can't pronounce it. It's like Dunlove something with an M. But if you Google Flower of Life and you see the big purple book, 
I think that's one of the best sacred geometry books. You'll see that the universe is built on math. And so doesn't it make sense that the universe would speak to us through math? Yeah. Numbers. And one of my, well, I shouldn't say my pet peeves, but one thing I'm not a big fan of is instantly Googling. What does it mean to see 111? What does it mean to see 888? I, I understand the compulsion to do that. And trust me, I do it too. But first, I, I always pause and I think, what does this mean for me? What does this number mean to me? Instead of just jumping to what do the books say? What does Google say? Don't you agree that it's so important? I to do. Think about your own self and what it means to you. Yes. And also, if you do choose to go to an on, find a, a site or a book or a person or a resource that resonates and feels true to you, because you can pull up 10 different sites and get 10 different answers. So I think it's important to tune into your intuition as well and make sure that, that you're, not, you're not looking for that quick fix answer. Uh, my gut feeling on this is that I agree with you entirely. The universe is working double time to get this person's attention, saying, okay, we're here. We've got your back. It's go time. We're going to keep sending these until you start to realize that you're not alone on this path. Exactly. And so I think it's a good thing. And whenever we start to notice synchronicities like that, it's also a sign to really just start to pay attention throughout your day, not only to what's happening around you, like numbers you're seeing on a clock, but also to, to what's happening within you. Are you getting ideas, nudges, inspirations, ideas? If so, when synchronicity is happening around you and within you, you need to take action. You're more of the numerology person than I am. So I'm also wondering, is the, if you're seeing the repetitive numbers, say 5555, is that also a nudge to look towards the number five and it's even that energy on steroids? Yes, exactly. That's why like if you see 555, that can mean change. 777, is the number of the mystic and the seeker. So if you see those numbers, it can be an invitation to really go down an esoteric path. Eight is the number of infinity and reinvention and personal power and abundance and money. So if you see 888, it can be either a message to save money or start to look for new sources of income or to start to really lean into what is your personal power. But when she's, because she's seeing all the numbers lining up, I think it's going to be a different meaning for her. Mm -hmm. I agree. Our next one. Hi, ladies. Loving the show as always. My day's off are Monday and Tuesday, so when I'm not quite ready to get out of bed, I listen to Psychic Teachers on Monday and Enlightened Empaths on Tuesday, and then can't wait for the next episodes. Both give a great positive way to start my day, so I'm very grateful for all three of you. You've helped me stay and grow on this path, not feel alone on it, and not feel crazy. Quick question. You mentioned Apophyllite this week regarding the crazy student energy but how does it contribute to the calming? Thanks for all the positive vibes, sending some light back to you. Okay, so that question was about, someone had written in and said, you know, there's a lot of chaotic student energy in my classroom. What crystals would you recommend? One of the stones I recommended, in addition to some calming stones, was apophyllite because apophyllite grows naturally in a pyramid shape. 
So depending on where and how and when a crystal is growing and what different elements are making up its formation, it's going to grow into certain shapes. Like Herkimer always grows in a diamond shape, but Apophyllite always grows in a pyramid shape. And any pyramid shape, I mean, there's a reason why there are ancient pyramids on every continent in the world, because the pyramid shape uplifts the vibrations around it. It's a way to focus energy and lift up energy. So in addition to having stones for calming down chaotic kids, <laughs> apophyllite is going to take that calm energy that the other stones are emitting and then help lift and raise the vibration of that group energy. So that's why I mentioned it in tandem with some calming stones. Beautiful. Yes. Oh, another good stone I hope I mentioned on that episode um, is zeolite. And it's really easy to find. It's not expensive. It's not, you know, some stones uh, like turquoise, for example, are so often fake and dyed. And a lot of stones are sold that aren't really even stones like cherry quartz. But zeolite is easy to find. And because it's so abundant, it's inexpensive. It looks kind of like calcite and quartz married and had a child because it's clear. Often you can find colored zeolite, but most of it is clear. And it, ha it grows often in that cluster shape of a quartz, but it's more of that smooth cube shape that you see calcite growing in. And the job of zeolite is to simply calm down the energy of group dynamics and help everyone work together while helping to absorb anxiety. And you can find that at Home Goods a lot. You can find that in most metaphysical stores. And a large, like hand, like a like a cluster size, the shape of your hand, should cost you around ten, fifteen dollars. It's really not expensive. Good information. Thank you. All right. Our next question says, "Thank you both for the informational webinar on mediumship the other night. It was very helpful, and I'm planning to sign up for the lunchtime class in March." Funny story, just now I was thinking about the course and I absently turned on the radio. I'll give you one guess as to what song was on. Heaven is a place on earth. It's a song I haven't heard in ages. Yes, I'd say this is a sign that I'm supposed to enroll. Thank you for teaching all of us about this world and helping us to grow to become who we came here to be. I love that. I love that. So that's something I often recommend to people. If you are thinking about signing up for a class, whether it's with Denise and me or anyone else, and the time seems like a commitment, the money seems like a commitment, your fear is wrangling in your head going, what if I stink at this? What if I don't enjoy this? I always recommend people ask for a sign. Always. And if you don't get one, you need to honor that and not sign up for that course. But if you do get one, I, I don't know, I just find it so confirming and affirming. And you always know it's your sign because it's accompanied by this innate inner feeling of knowing. You just know, that's my sign. I'm supposed to sign up for this. Right. And if it keeps coming back or it's something that you keep putting on the back burner as a, I really want to do this, but and then the anxiety or the mess gets in the way. So you say, oh, I'm not ready or I'm not capable. Just... I agree. Having something that you can say, if one example would be, uh, I signed up for a workshop quite a while ago. I can't remember when it was now, but I, there was a, a little thing that said, if you want to volunteer, 
And I, that's what I said. I said, okay, if I'm supposed to go to this, and you could get half price off the cost of the workshop if you volunteered. So I thought, okay, if I'm supposed to go to this, then I'll get this volunteer part of it, and I'll only have to pay half price. So then it came through, and I ended up going, and it was fine. But that was my sign that I needed to know, okay, I really am meant to go and do this. So it can be as simple as that. It can be asking someone in spirit. It can be asking for something tangible as a sign. But again, trust your gut. And, but I think it's important if you keep being nudged towards the same direction. So not going to let up until you make the jump. Yeah. Oh, and I have a couple of stories to share on that that are really quick. When I was getting my Reiki 1 and 2 degree, I really wanted to move on to the Reiki Masters. And my Reiki 1 and 2 teacher, I really, I do still love her and admire her and I wanted to work with her, but she was charging $10,000, I think, for the Reiki Master. It was really, really outrageous for me personally, so I couldn't do that. So then I found another teacher about three hours away and she was charging, I think, four or five thousand dollars for the Reiki Master Series. Even that was out of, I just like, I can't spend that on this. I don't even know what I want to do with this. I, I just was like, no. So I just prayed to God and I said, look, if I'm supposed to become a Reiki Master teacher, you are either going to have to make the funds appear or make it happen in some way because I'm not parting with these dollars for that. You know, that was just like way too much money for me. And about two months later, not even, I was still in my seekers group, the intuitive development group that my friend and I had started together. And a woman in that group hadn't made it to the last meeting. We met every month and she came back the next month and she said, so sorry I missed last month. I went up to meet William Rand. And if you guys don't know him, he started Reiki.org and he does the Reiki magazine and he's just kind of like the Reiki guy in America. And she said, I just got my Reiki master's from him and I'm so excited next summer I'm going back for my Karuna Reiki. And she said, I'm really looking for someone to practice on. Does anyone here have Reiki one and two? And they'd be willing to let me attune them to the Reiki master degree. Wow. Yeah. And I met my lovely friend Gloria and that's how I got my, I did give her a reading and I, you know, I did, I did do an energy exchange because I believe in that, but I didn't have to pay $10,000. I've never heard of of a master course for Reiki costing 10 grand. They don't as much anymore. This is, I mean, I'm talking 15 years ago. Yeah, this is back in the day when um, that's how much the Reiki master was. And my my Reiki 1 and 2 teacher, she was in the same boat in the the 1980s. She wanted to get her Reiki masters. It was $10,000. She couldn't afford it. She said to God, if I'm supposed to do this, you know, make the money appear. And within a year, she got an, an, a very unexpected inheritance from a distant relative, and it was $10,000. But now that Reiki has become so prominent and there's so many teachers out there, I think everyone is moving away from Mrs. Takata's feeling that it needs to be exclusive and secret and you have to keep the price high so that only those who are truly called come to it. I think it's moving into a whole new direction, and I'm very excited about that. When I do a Reiki Master's, I, I I never charge that much. I think the most I've charged for a Reiki Masters is $300. So I don't believe in charging um, a lot of money for it, but, but that's just me. Now, another time I was wanting to take a class and I asked for a sign to come through. No sign came through. I honored it. I didn't take the class. 
And then recently a class came up that I really wanted to take. It was expensive. It was $750. And I was like, I don't know if I can do that. That's a lot of money. I asked for a sign. And Denise, while I was waiting for the sign, I was like, screw it. I want this class. I don't need a sign. And I took the class. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Like, cause it just, by putting the sign out there and then waiting, I, I just was thinking, you know what? I work really hard. I can invest in myself. It's okay. I really want to do this. I don't need a sign. My sign is me. Right. And just, just for curiosity's sake, was it something that you'd wanted to do for a long time? Yes. Okay. So for that goes years. back to what I said a couple minutes ago of it keep coming, it'll keep coming back. And then you'll get that to that place where you just say, okay, I'm doing this. So that was great, great example. Yeah, I think we all need to um, start to talk to the universe that way and start to listen. Okay, our next question is, oh, before you read the next question, I just did want to say, so we hope, actually, I think she has signed up for the class already. Um, but our lunchtime class is in March. It's the, fr the four Fridays in March from noon to 1.30 p.m. And we are already filling up pretty fast, but we look forward to having more people join us. If you want to sign up, you can sign up on my website, samanthafay.com or denisesthegratefulmessenger.com. And we're, we just love teaching this class. We aren't going to teach it again until probably the fall. I've got a lot going on this summer with my daughter graduating high school <laughs> and leaving for college. So everyone's going to have to send me lots of prayers because I'm going to be a tearful wreck this summer. And you won't want me teaching you mediumship in June or July, promise you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll be offering the advanced class. So if you've taken any of our mediumship 101 courses or you're already you have a basic skill set you can send us a note and we'll you know consider that as well for the advanced class which will be held on Thursday evenings in the month of April other things coming up are in April 24th and 25th I'm going to be teaching an intuitive tarot class and doing readings in Wallingford Vermont in May 15th to 18th, I'll be in Toronto doing readings for a couple of those days. And in, this is a, a new thing, May, the weekend of May 1st, Jen, the astrologer friend that we have on, and I will be doing a retreat in Harrison, Maine on opening up to your intuitive gifts. So lots of fun stuff coming up the next few months. When is that? The first weekend in May. Ooh, so Denise got me an astrology reading with Jennifer as a gift for Christmas, and I just had that done, and it was amazing. I did not know your astrology reading could tell you a little bit about your past life. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, and you also have some beautiful new bracelets that you've put up. Yeah, I've got Kyanite is my newest one, and I'm working on putting up some other ones like Morganite and Pyrite I'm putting together. And I just got these Merry Miraculous Metals in the mail. I haven't put them all together yet, but I bought Angelite beads and I'm going to make prayer bracelets oh. so that if people do want to connect to Mary on a more personal level, they can have these bracelets. And I bought sterling silver like spacer beads so people can count out the nine Angelite on each. So there's going to be three sections of nine beads so they can do either a novena or a rosary. Oh, that's beautiful. And to have it with you all the time. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really like that. And these angelite beads, they're so calming. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful stone. Okay, our next one. Dear Denise and Samantha, my name is Michelle, and a couple months ago I discovered your podcast. 
talk about the right time. I'm trying to understand my gift with intuition and being an empath and don't know who else to turn to. I've researched, asked friends, and haven't found a way to embrace this. For the longest time, I've sensed death. It doesn't have to be my family or anyone I know. It can be anyone. I get this overwhelming feeling, almost like an anxiety attack. I get that feeling something is going to happen. I start to feel alert, and I'm trying so hard to figure out why. Then when I see it on the news, hear from social media, or family friends that someone has died, the feeling will go away. I can also, for example, see on the news someone passed away from a tragic car accident, and they'll sometimes have a picture. If it's a group photo that they've taken for the deceased, I can pick out who it was that has tragically passed. I can also remember so vividly when I was around eight years old, my grandmother was constantly going to and from the hospital. She was getting ready to go again and told me she'd be back. I remember looking right at her and saying, no, you won't come back. She never did. My question is, how can I embrace this? I've always felt like a healer and feel so guilty that I feel this way. I feel that I should help them or I could prevent this. Thank you for your time. Uh, well, I think, and we've talked about this before, I think, on shows. I, I mean, I sense death. I sense it, it's a very distinct, energetic, entity feeling. What I don't even know how to describe it. It's a unique, it feels different than anything I've ever, ever connected with. Do I get it all the time? No. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't get it all the time. But when I do, it puts me on red alert. So I understand that anxiety that she's talking about. The fact that it's, um, we've said this being, I don't know if it's John Holland who says this or someone else that we've trained with, but they're, they're saying you want to work so that you're in control of it. It's not in control of you. And I think with this type of work, it's so, so important to be able to uh, set those boundaries, turn it on and off, do those things. But with this, I truly, I'm seeing this as a blessing in disguise once she learns how to work with the energy. Yes, I do too. And I, I think sensing death or I don't sense death as much as I dream about it. I will often dream about someone dying before they, they do pass. I don't, I don't see it as a gift, really. I just see it as part of what comes with being intuitive and tuned into the energy of those around us. It can feel like a burden. On my dad's 70th birthday, they were all at my house. I think I've told this story, I don't know, 100 times, but I'll tell it quickly. <laughs> and as I'm putting the cake in front of him, I see my grandmother, my nana, who I wasn't very close to. She was you know, very, very close to my dad, but she wasn't very close to our family. And I hadn't seen a full body apparition in a while at that point. And I'm just staring at her and she held up five, her whole hands. Like I thought she was waving to me, but she emphasized the five hands. And she said, tell him to enjoy this. He has five good years left. And then she disappeared. And I sat on that for like two years it wasn't until my dad was around 72 that Parkinson's started to set in and he started having memory issues that I told my mom, hey, if there's like a trip you guys want to take or something important, and I kind of brushed it off on the Parkinson's thing, like, oh, this is really going to set in. You need to make use of this time. And when she ignored that, about another year went by and I finally told her about the, the visitation I had experienced at his birthday party. And I said, I do not think he's dying at 75, but I think something's going to set in where he's not going to be able to 
to travel with you or, or do the things you, you two like to do. And she listened to it and didn't do anything about it. I don't think she could face it. And sure enough, at 75 is when Alzheimer's really set in. And, and the last five years, my dad has kind of been locked in his, in his own world. And I did feel the burden of that. I did feel like, should I have done more? Should I have said more? And yet, I'm still grateful that I was able to receive that because I'll tell you, I use those seven, those five years with my dad to really and truly tell him everything I needed to tell him to experience what I needed to experience with him, to expose him more to my kids, to ask him questions. I had him write down more of his family genealogy. Like I took advantage of that as much as I could. And so I do think there's some benefit to it. Also though, the more you embrace and work with your intuition, the less quote unquote negative messages you're going to get through. Don't you find that, Denise, that the more yeah. you do this, the more positive the messages become? And the more adept you become at filtering out what you want to connect with and what you don't. Yes. And you can tell your guides, like, I don't want to know that anymore. I'm, I'm willing to work for you. I'm willing to work for spirit and help in any way I can, but I am not going to be the angel of death on this path of white light. So give me another assignment. Okay. And that's a free will. Excellent point. Because in, in the note, this, this lady says, I've always felt like a healer. And we've brought this up that it seems that more and more people are being tested they're being the, the more you try to shine the light, the more they're they're getting blocks or uh, detours or or whatever to keep them off their path. And I wonder if this is just kind of a precursor to her truly opening up to the healing energies or working in a field that's very specific with mediumship. Because mm -hmm. obviously, she feels like well, I mean, to me, she feels like a very natural medium. Yeah, and I think the best way to work with this is to take classes, join a group, start meditating, and read books. If you go to my website, samanthafay.com, and click on resources, I have a list of books I recommend. I need to update that because I've read so many great books on mediumship and intuition in the last six months. But I have all the books that I read when I was opening up and learning about this field listed on there. But really and truly also do what I did. I used to walk into the library or my local bookstore and I would say to my guides, direct me to what book I need to read now for my development. And just, you've got to put yourself out there when you're developing your intuition. You cannot do it alone. I, I just don't, I don't see how you can do it alone. You have to have a group to practice with. You have to have a community to support you and expose you to new things to try and experiment with. You know, like I was not a meditator before I joined my intuitive group. I didn't really like meditating. I liked praying, but I didn't like sitting in silence and going to that group every Friday night. It taught me how to do that and how to embrace it. I didn't, I would never have considered trying psychometry if I hadn't joined a group. It wouldn't have crossed my mind. It felt too, I don't know, like a carnival parlor trick. Let me hold your watch, you know, but sitting in that class and seeing all the more information I could get when I was holding an object of someone's, it really opened up another aspect of my intuition. So I don't think this can be a solitary path at some point in your development. Okay. She also brings up, I feel like I should help them. And what has, if, if these people, she brought up a couple times in her note as well, how people, she can always hone in on who tragically passed. 
And maybe part of her work is helping that transition, helping those people who did, because it's a different from what I've experienced as a medium and talking to other mediums. If you, tra- if you pass tragically or suddenly, you're going to go through a different process of acclimation on the other side. And maybe part of her role is to help with that. Yes, yes. And she could ask to be a night, that's, I call those people night workers, where in our sleep state, a lot of healers and intuitives will journey to the, uh, the, the other side or the life between lives stage and help those souls who have passed suddenly or tragically to acclimate to the other side. And they need those of us who are still tethered to the earth to do that work because they're vibrating at our level. They're not vibrating at the level of their guides and angels. So they can't necessarily see sense or feel them to get their guidance. So they need us. That's where the word medium comes from to be a medium between this side and the other and help them fully cross over. That old TV show ghost whisperer keeps popping into my head and that's the type of work she did, right? Wasn't it Jennifer Love Hewitt? Yes. Yep. And that's based on Marian Winkowski's work. Another great book. Everyone should read When Goes Speak. I think I've read it three times. It's phenomenal. Okay. Our next question says, recently my mother was at home and decided she wanted to do some scrapbooking for one of her overseas trips. She started looking through some of her spare empty photo albums to pick which one she would use. She finally picked one and quickly flipped through it to check the condition of the album. As she was flipping through, she came across wedding photos where someone had already started scrapbooking roughly about six pages worth. She soon realized she recognized the people in the photos. It was the wedding photos of the daughter of my mother's boss taken around eight years ago. So in case that's confusing to anyone just listening to this and not reading it, so her mom is looking through some old scrapbooks. She buys a lot of scrapbooks at, you know, like other places she's got this empty one she's never used she's flipping through it and there's six pages of photos from her boss's daughter's wedding so she says my mother couldn't understand how the album came into her possession as she tried to remember she couldn't come up with any explanation as she'd never seen these photos before my mother tried to remember where she picked up the album originally and all she could recall as a possibility was from a second-hand store where she used to volunteer. But it was still so bizarre. My mother took the album to work the next day to show and return the album to her boss. When she explained and showed the photos to her boss, the boss was bewildered as, as well as she had never seen these photos of her daughter either. The album was given to the daughter in order to possibly further investigate where the album came from. The daughter asked why my mother had her scrapbook. With still no explanation, the daughter said the book wasn't lost. She thought it was stored away somewhere in the shed. The daughter was the one who had started the album. As my mother was telling me what happened, immediately I thought of the boss's husband. Sadly, he passed away around 15 years ago. It made me wonder, could it be him trying to reach out or connect to his family? While my mother has known her boss since before he passed away, It just made me wonder, could this be a possibility as we still have no explanation of this event? I don't know if I'm overthinking it, but it's also interesting that their son is about to get married in the next month. Do you ladies have any thoughts on this event? It still has bewildered us, and I would love it if you could share any insight you might have. Lots of love and light from Australia. 
Well, that is just fascinating. So again, her mom is looking through a stack of empty photo albums she has. She finds this album. It's got six pages of her boss's daughter's wedding. She goes to the boss. The boss gives it to her daughter. The daughter says, that's my album, and it's still in my shed. Of course, I'm assuming she never could find it in her shed. And somehow it ends up in our listener's mom's home. And it's the same time, just about, when the boss's son is also going to get married. I emailed her back. I told her that she should read Hello from Heaven. Have you read that, Denise? Yes. That was written in, what, the 80s, I think, or the early Mm -hmm. 90s? It's an older book. But it's all stories. It's written by a husband and wife couple. And it's just stories of things like this where loved ones will make something weird and unexplainable happen. And it's often around a big event, a birth, a wedding, an anniversary. And it's, it's a hello from heaven. And I think that's exactly what this is. When my grandmother passed, she uh, was in a nursing home. This was a long, long time ago. So my father had a business, and this man that worked for him used to go to the local transfer station. It used to be different back then. There would be treasures. You could find treasures, and people would just, anyway, very different. And he brought back this bag of stuff. And my father looked at it, and he said, how did you get my mother-in-law's stuff? And the man said, what do you mean? He said, the name on that stuff, that's my mother-in-law. She just died. What had happened was when they were cleaning out the room at the nursing home, someone didn't give the stuff to my mother and they put it in the dumpster and it ended up going to the dump. But it wasn't a dump then. It was a transfer station and they'd separate stuff out. So it wasn't this man was picking the dump. But I always thought that was so strange that what are the chances? Exactly. I mean, we're talking different towns. We're not talking like right down the road. We're talking probably four towns away. Wow. Completely different place. Shouldn't have ended up there. You know, in back in the, I don't know if they still do this. When people go into a facility, they write their name on their belongings so that it won't disappear or get pilfered or whatever. I hadn't thought about that in years until you read this letter. Wow. Well, you know, this, this dad in heaven, I mean, think about it. He wants everyone to know I'm here, I'm okay, I see that our son is getting married, and I just want you guys to know that I love you, I'm still watching over you. If he made his daughter's wedding album appear in the daughter's house or his wife's house, they would be like, oh, you must have left it here, or someone must have been cleaning out the shed. If he made it appear, appear in some random stranger's house, it never would have gotten back to them. So he had to make it appear in someone's house who was connected to his wife and daughter and son, but couldn't be so connected that it would be plausible that the wedding album would show up there. How clever is that? But it also goes back to, he probably knew about her scrapbooking. She'd look for these yep. used books. Yes. Yeah. That's I love very it. True. I do too. So I looked up the book. It's Hello from Heaven by Bill and Judy Guggenheim. And it was published in 1997. I thought it was older than that. It's a great book. It is. It really is. Okay. We'll move on. Okay, our next one. Hello, Samantha and Denise. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us via your podcast. You make my heart happy. My question is, how do you deal with people that have a negative or mean-spirited opinion about psychics and mediums? I, too, am an empath and don't handle conflict well. Poster child, 
I don't, <laughs> I don't share with others other than my very close friends and some family that I enjoy reading cards and have dreams of be being a medium. I've heard people's derogatory, ignorant comments regarding the metaphysical, and the thought of dealing with that face-to-face -face scares me. I often think, what would I say if it was directed at me? I'm better at defending myself or my beliefs with a stranger, but the thought of conflict between a long-term coworker or in-law makes me nervous. Have you, have you been in a face-to-face -face situation that someone made not so pleasant comments about your profession? Peace, love, and light. No, I have no idea what that would be no, like. No, no. But, you know, now at this point, sometimes it catches me off guard because I do this full time. So most of my life revolves around this or the people that I'm dealing with. So when that does come up, where was I? I was somewhere recently and someone asked what I did. And my radar went off and I thought, go with consultant. So that's what I did. And then the, the conversation drift and it, you know how spirit will always kind of whisper in your ear because I've been more open about being a medium, being an intuitive, being a psychic, but there was something about these people and exactly what this woman just said, something later in the conversation turned to, you know, about people being crazy and they had read something about, Oh, I'm going to get a sign. And that is so damn hurtful. If that's your truth. You know, I don't know that it I don't know that it hurts me anymore. I I've I've totally been there and I've been in that hurt place and that defensive feeling of oh, I have to defend who I am and what I believe in. But I've really worked on this a lot. Like I've written about it, I've talked about it, I've thought about it, I've prayed about it. And I don't know. I look at people who judge anyone whether it's us or you know, that the, the person we were talking about earlier on in the episode at my daughter's restaurant. And my heart just goes out to people who are filled with judgment because at, at the heart of their judgment is fear, mm -hmm. you know, and they're afraid. And they've been given this set of rules. doesn't matter where the set of rules came from, but they've been given a set of rules and they believe, okay, if I follow these rules, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm right. The book says I'm right and I'm going to go to heaven and all will be well. And anyone who doesn't follow these rules isn't, and I need to help them. And I, once I started looking at it from their perspective, like, oh, they're just really believing that this is the only set of rules and they have to follow this. I just don't engage anymore. And if they do confront me about it, I will say to them, thank you so much for your concern. Tell me where, where this is coming from. And if they'll tell me like, well, the Bible says blah, blah, blah. Now I know enough about the Bible where if I feel like I need to debate them, I can say, well, what do you think about this, this, and this? And I can point out, you know, some factual issues and I can point out some other places in the Bible that do talk about using spiritual gifts. And usually I just try to have a very positive, like, thank you so much for sharing your views. I will think about that. It puffs them up. It makes them happy as hell when you say that. And it kind of deflates their argument because you're not, you know, I, I don't, my goal in life is not to win an argument. The hell do you win when you win an argument anyway? Really? What are you walking away with? You've made someone else feel less, first of all. So what are you actually winning when you win an argument? So my goal isn't to try to prove that what I'm doing is right or to defend what I do is, you know, going to save my soul. I just will either disengage or I will listen and I'll just say thank you for giving me something to think about.
and everyone walks away happy. You don't have to defend who you are, is what I'm trying to say. Right. Equally, having been very, very much in the closet for a very long time due to my profession, living in a small town, having a job that was very public, I can understand this on a core level of the vulnerability involved with showing your true face. Because especially if you are dealing with naysayers and negativity and and what I love in this is that it's not the strangers or the person on the street she's worried about. It's more family, friends, in-laws, people who know her as they know her in a different way. Um, and that's, I didn't really open up to this until after I left my job as far as people I worked with because it was a fairly conservative environment. So I think um, it gets easier. I agree with you. And it's not negating who you are, but also making sure you have the self-confidence in who you are and what you do so that you can deflect that. Yeah. And I don't think it's negating who we are to not talk about this. Like, for example, I really need to trade in my car. I've been talking to you about that forever. I'm not doing it this month because Mercury is in retrograde. And that's not a good time to get a new car. So when friends and family are asking me, hey, you were looking for cars in January, what happened? I'm not telling them, well, Mercury's in retrograde. And statistically, because I was, I'm Gemini and Gemini's ruled by Mercury, it's not a good time for me to, I'm not going to go into all of that. I just tell them, oh, I'm dealing with taxes right now and work is crazy. So I'm going to wait till the end of March. They don't have to know that my reason is because I believe that Mercury retrograde messes up some stuff in my life because that messes with their worldview. And I don't, I don't need to visit that on them. And I don't think that's hiding who I am. I think it's respecting myself and respecting their views. I want to go back to your judgment statement for just a second. And because what popped into my head when you said that was there are also people who are wired. They are so linear, sequential, grounded, A leads to B. They really cannot process things that are not concrete and tangible. Their mind doesn't work that way. And, and I don't think those are the type of people she's talking about. She's talking more about the negativity, the judgment, that stuff. But I think there are people who um, really, they don't dismiss it, but they really don't understand it in any way, shape, or form. And that might come across as negativity sometimes or disbelief. Yes, yes. And I think people, we all are living at our own level of awareness and we can only take in information and facts that are going to fit our level of awareness, right? Right. So if they're not ready to think about the fact that the universe exists this way, who are we, really, who are we to try to push it on them? In the beginning, when people would come up to me and they'd be like, I don't believe in all that nonsense. I used to think game on and I would start to give them a reading to show them that their loved ones are in heaven. What right did I have? That was almost as rude as their judgy ass selves, you know? Because <laughs> we I mean, do not really, want to become judgy ass. We do not. We do not. It's not, it's not fair. When, um, when I started reading about cargo cults, it kind of sent me into a dark night of the soul because 
I was reading about these civilizations out in the Pacific Islands that existed so peacefully. And then during World War II, when these American ships came over and dropped supplies for them and landed to refuel, they thought they were gods. And to this day, there are cargo cults that are playing to that are praying to from John. They believe there's a god named I'm sorry, John from. John from. And they think it's because when the US mm-hmm. soldiers landed and gave them food and things like that, and they said, Who are you? And the soldier said, I'm John from America. I'm John from Chicago or whatever. And so they have built their their churches are, are runways and airplanes made out of sticks and straw. And they're still alive and well today. And that really freaked me out because I was like, what if that's where all of our gods come from? What if they're just beings visiting us and we turn them into gods? And I started asking members of my family about these questions I was having and it kind of freaked them out. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of my very close family friends said, so you don't believe the world was created in six days and that God rested on the seventh? Well, Denise, I hadn't believed that since I took science in like ninth grade. So I was like, no. And I could see that it really upset her. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, all of those things have just taught me, who am I to question where anyone else is? And if they want to think what I'm doing is sending me to hell, well, I think it's going to be pretty fun in hell if people like us are going to be there. (laughs) (laughs) I get a window seat. Of course. (laughs) Okay. I will move on to the next one. Is it my turn to read? Mm-hmm. Okay. This past summer, my 20-year-old nephew, my husband's sister's son, was in a devastating car accident. From what I was told, he was driving down a country road incredibly fast with his girlfriend in the passenger seat, and they were having an argument. Then they hit some kind of rift and went flying off the road, rolling several times top over bottom. The only reason he survived is that a man from the only home around for miles saw the accident and rushed to them. Even the authorities had given up hope for my nephew. But this man stuck it out and made sure he was completely taken care of and life, life, life flighted out. His injuries were so severe that he fell into a coma for several days. His mother, my sister-in-law, is married to an awful narcissistic man who is deeply suffering from severe alcoholism. The effects this had on their family are absolutely heartbreaking. All of the kids have been through so much with his deep emotional, verbal, and physical abuse. My nephew is the oldest, and with that, he takes on a lot of responsibility for his mother and other siblings. There is a lot expected of him and from him to so many different people. While he was in the coma, the entirety of my husband's family fervently prayed for him, visited him, and did everything one could do to help in this situation. My husband has a large family, and we are the only ones that don't live in the same city. Over the past year or so, I've been awakening to my empathic and intuitive abilities and gifts. I've been doing all I can to learn about these and how to use them to help those around me. I love crystals, and at this point, I had only started to acquire them. My mother, also an empath, has a larger collection of stones, and I had asked to borrow some of her black ones one night to meditate with. That evening, I laid in my bed, placed the stones where I felt they needed to be placed, and started to fall into a deep meditative state. While I was meditating, I felt deeply grounded, like the earth was surrounding me and holding me in and absorbing all my negative energies. That's what black stones will do, by the way, if you meditate with them. Very grounding and protective. After this sinking feeling, my mind wandered over to thoughts about my nephew. 
and wondering where he was and what might be holding him back from waking from his coma. And I could feel his energy but couldn't fully see him. I felt the impression of him being a little boy again. Today he is about six foot five, but while in this state, he felt like a little boy, probably around 10 or 11. I could feel his anxiety about going back and waking up, how everyone depends on him, all of the pain he would have to endure because of the family situation. And he just appeared so lost and scared, almost determined to not go back because he knew how hard it was going to be. And then I had a thought in that deep meditative place. I looked over at him. It looked like it was through a dark and hazy portal. And I said to him with what felt like telepathic communication, don't go back because they love you. Go back because you love them. And I kept repeating it over and over. I'm not sure how long this whole experience was, and I know I was 100% a conduit for this communication. And while these things could be that I might be saying every thought and inspiration I had during this experience, it truly felt like it was gifted to me in those moments. I can't remember how long this took. I do remember the feeling of stones rolling off my face, which kind of jolted me back to this dimension. The next day, my husband received a text from his family telling us that our nephew woke up from his coma. I was floored, and I felt so special to have experienced this and in part facilitated this. And then I felt my ego starting to swell, and I tried to rein that back in. It wasn't until just before Thanksgiving that I shared this experience with my husband the night before we went out to be with his whole family for the holiday. I was excited and curious to see my nephew and to see if there would be anything significant or validating in our exchange, which I realize is a heavy expectation to have. Not so surprisingly, nothing was validated that day. I didn't feel like he sensed anything from what had happened months previous. Because of that, I kept second-guessing the validity of that experience. I've only shared this story with my husband and a very close friend. I've thought about writing to you both about this for quite a while. I guess I'm seeking some kind of validation, or was this all connected, concocted in my head? Is it even possible to connect with someone while they are in a coma? I want to thank you both for this podcast. It has helped me so much on my path of enlightenment. I've actually turned a few of my friends onto your podcast as well, and we all love sharing your insights with each other. Thank you, and I both you hope, I hope you both have a beautiful day. Wow. Okay. First of all, I felt the validity of her story in the email. Don't mm-hmm. you? I agree. I definitely think this is something that she experienced. I do think she talked him back over to our realm. I don't think he's going to remember it on a conscious level, and that's okay. We have so many like layers of an onion. We have so many layers to us. We have our conscious self, our unconscious self, our higher self. And so on an unconscious state, like if he ever were to do hypnosis, he probably would recall this. But I do think that you experienced this. I do think that you were, as you said, a conduit or a medium for higher beings to communicate to his lost soul in this coma state. And there have been wonderful documentation of mediums being able to communicate with others while in a coma state. I know I've done it. Um, I know you can do it, Denise. I think any medium can do it. I think any family member can do it. When you reach out to a conscious soul, you can you can communicate whether they are here on the other side or in a coma or locked in mental illness or Alzheimer's. A lot of times when I connect with someone in spirit who has was, was in a coma, so many times the message will come through, tell them I could hear them. 
and the person will say, oh my gosh, I used to talk to them. Or they'll say, or they'll show me whispering in the person's ear when they were in the coma. And the person in spirit who has passed will say, tell her I knew what she was saying when she whispered in my ear. I mean, so you're still, the, there's still, well, let's go to the science side. Your brain is still registering. We're not talking about people that are completely brain dead. This is, you're still, everything's still going on in there. It's just unable to break through. I worked in a state institution when I was a kid. It was horrific. But anyway, back to the real story. And there was a woman on the ward who had severe, severe CP, cerebral palsy. And this was back many, many, many years ago. But because she couldn't communicate, they had put her on a ward with uh, severely and profoundly impaired, cognitively impaired people. And it always broke my heart to interact with her because you could look in her eyes and know she was in there, but she had no way of communicating that. Oh, that's terrifying. And I think to be in a coma, I agree with you entirely. He may not, he may never remember it now, but all the work we do is on that. It's about telepathic, it's energy, it's frequency and connecting. And we can do that with our dear friends. I mean, I can, right now I could send out a, a beacon to a dear friend of mine and she's going to call me. Well, I can do that with my children. I can do, you and I have done that. Oh, I was just thinking about you. Oh, surprise. So I think the telepathic part, it also, just a nudge, if she chooses to open this door, she sure fa- sounds like a healer, a natural intuitive, a beautiful conduit to work with people. Just saying. Yeah, I agree. When, when my former husband, Mike, was in a coma years ago, our next-door neighbor would come and visit with me at the hospital every day, and he had been in a coma years before due to a motorcycle accident. And I remember asking him, Joe, do you remember what it was like? Do you remember anything from being in a coma? And he said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I'm sure it was just my brain keeping me company, but the whole time I was in the rec room play area of the childhood home I grew up in. And my uncle who has since passed, you know, and he was deceased when Joe was in a coma would visit him and would just sit with him on that couch in the playroom and talk to him about life and, and what he was supposed to go back for. So when, when Mike woke up from the coma, I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to hear a near death experience. He's going to talk to me about the light. I can't wait. Like I was kind of excited to hear what he remembered. Of course he woke up brain injured. So he didn't remember anything. I was during his coma. I found out I was pregnant with our third child. And after, you know, I mean, newly pregnant, like eight, nine weeks. And so after he was home from the hospital, I went to see my Reiki teacher because I had just gotten Reiki uh, one, I believe. Yeah, I just gotten Reiki one before I got pregnant. And I went to see her and she said, hey, we have this visiting psychic. She's pretty good. Why don't, why don't you go talk to her and see what she says about everything going on? And so I did. And it was before I had the test done to see what I was having, a boy or a girl. And she said, there's a little girl all around you and she's dancing with a man. And she's so excited to come to you all. And I was like, okay, that's great. Another girl. All right. So I didn't tell Mike like, oh, I went and got a reading today because it was before I had fully come out of the psychic closet. I didn't even know I was psychic really at that point. I hadn't taken my first intuitive development class. And we found out we were having a little girl. 
and we cut, we're driving home from the doctor's office. And he said, you know, you keep asking me what I remember about the coma. And he said, the only thing I remember is dancing with a little girl. Oh. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know, like ring around the rosy, like just silly stuff you would do. And he said, I thought it was just me having memories of our two other girls, but maybe it's the baby in your belly. Mm-hmm. And then when Chloe grew up a little, like around one or two, he said, that's what she looked like. Wow. Now, he doesn't remember a lot of it. He doesn't talk about it ever. So anyway, I say to this listener, your nephew might not consciously remember this, but it did happen. The fact that he woke up the next day, I mean, come on, right? Um, and little bits and pieces might come out as he progresses and he might never share them with you. Those traumas we go through, sometimes they're really hard to voice and revisit and talk about, but I definitely think it happened. And I just love that whole, that sentence she gave him. Don't go back because they love you. Go back because you love them. I think that summarizes why we all come back. That's beautiful. Okay, but I love do, that story about your former husband and the little girl. That validates so much. I know. It really does. It really does. And I've had readings with other well-known intuitives and mediums who have said, like, he was supposed to cross over. Remember that reading I told you about where she mm-hmm. said you called him back from heaven? Right. So I definitely think he was over there for a good amount of time and, and met her. And I think that's part of the reason why he came back. Because every, every single doctor, I'm talking like nine, told me he will never wake up from this coma. And he did. And he's working and doing great and is a wonderful father and a great friend to me. I hate brain injuries. Yes. That was my number one rule with my boys growing up. No head injuries. So that we were skiing, riding bikes. And part of that is because I, one of the jobs I had years ago was working with people with severe brain injuries. And it it's the only disability that gives you an umbrella of invincibility as far as accountability that you can. And that's, I don't mean that as a negative uh, or derogatory statement, but I just watched how much people's lives change when that, and I'm talking children that had had injuries. I never worked with adults with injuries. Yeah. It changes the whole personality. It's crazy. I think we have time for one more. I do too. Okay. And this is a good one. It's on our most recent one. No, yeah. this is this. No, this is not. Okay. We, we have a bunch of emails that I don't think we're going to get to on the angels. So we'll save those for next month because some of those are awesome stories of angelic encounters. Thank you so much for your thoughtful podcast. I enjoy listening and gaining so much insight from listening to you both. I really enjoyed the discussions you've had on narcissism and empaths. As an empath who is recovering from narcissism empath dynamics with my mother and many friends, romantic relationships, before I figured out and got help to work on stopping the pattern. When listening to your recent episode speaking to when empaths asked, could I be a narcissist? I wanted to contribute a hypothesis to the conversation. I agree with you that a defining characteristic of being a narcissist is that they would never ask, am I a narcissist? So if you're asking, the answer is likely no. My theory is that when someone who is an empath worries that they are a narcissist, it's often either because, one, they're accustomed to being on the doormat behavior side of the empathic spectrum, 
thinking their role in life is only to worry about others, so that if they start to spend time doing things or even thinking about their own self-interest in a healthy way, they experience shame or think that they're being self-centered. Or, two, the person has chosen the strategy of isolation as an empathic person to protect themselves. This type of person might avoid interactions that bring up others' emotions as a form of self-protection. They might consider themselves self-centered, but it's in a turtle hiding in the shell way due to being overwhelmed by their awareness of people's feelings versus lack of empathy. This person might even have a persona or self-identity as being aloof as a way of protecting themselves. Thanks again for the interesting and thoughtful discussion. And I wanted to see what thoughts of my theory as another empath who has spiraled down the rabbit hole of researching this topic as well. Love your show. Take good care. I think those are, that's a damn good hypothesis. <laughs> I really do. And the theory I that, well, I can relate to both of those things that she brought up, truly, yeah. especially the isolation. And I love being alone. In many ways, it's easier. I just traveled for six weeks by myself. It's easier in some ways. And, and I think she is spot on. The more sensitive we get, the more other people's energy can impact us. It's not that we don't want to interact, but we may choose to. The other side of that coin is I think sometimes staying alone or being isolated is a form of protection so we don't get hurt again. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that empaths who set boundaries, it's such an uncomfortable thing for them that they might think, oh, this is so selfish of me, I'm being a narcissist. But I, I read, and I think I shared on, on the show recently, this sentence that Denise has like changed my life. And the sentence simply said, people don't like to, hurt, to set boundaries because when we set boundaries, we hurt people's feelings. That's so simple. And yet it's so true. When you say no to someone, they're going to be hurt. Can you go to this thing with me? No. Oh, they feel bad for a minute. Can you stop everything you're doing to help me with this? No, they're going to feel bad for a moment. But once you push through that as an empath, you're going to realize that's not narcissism, that's self-care. So I think she's right. I think the isolation is important for an empath because of what you said, that it's just sometimes easier being on your own than navigating through everyone's emotions and needs and expectations. But also I think that's how an empath recharges their batteries. Whereas most narcissists recharge their batteries with other people, not all, but a good majority of them. There are introverted narcissists who recharge by being alone, but they always have to get their charge by being with other people. And I don't think that's true for us empaths. No. And her other point of if you've played the doormat role or that has been, you were gifted that in your family of origin, or you may not have any practice with how to take care of yourself, or, or and that will feel very self-centered. Or if you've always been the primary wage earner or the single parent or the person taking care of the parents, or if you've always not, not so much out of choice, but out of necessity, your role has been to care for everyone else. When the opportunity comes up that you get some respite from that, how are you supposed to know how to do it if you haven't had any practice? Yeah. You know, I listened to Bob and Sherry. It's a, it's a great podcast. It's a radio show. They're and fun. They're, they're fun. very fun. But she has, they have another one called The Oddcast, and they did an episode, uh, I think in January, on like if you woke up one morning and realized you had the whole day free to do whatever you wanted. And she was like, I'm not talking like, oh, let's fly to Paris, just a, a normal, regular day, and you could do whatever you wanted. 
what would you do? And she was thinking how she's so programmed to be a mom and a wife and a worker that it took her a long time coming up with something. And I laugh because she's so funny and I just love her. And then I went about my day and thought, yeah, what would I do? I think when we're so used to doing, doing, doing for others, I mean, I, I invite all of our listeners to ask themselves that. If you woke up one day and there was nothing expected of you and nothing that you expected of yourself, no have tos, no to do list, what would you do with your day? And if you have a hard time answering that question, you might be in that busy season of your life or you know, you might just need to really think about that because that's going to lead you to some self-care answers. That's but I do agree that it's not a sign of narcissism. No. And I, I like these two theories. They're yeah. very, very insightful. I love hearing from our listeners. They have so much to share and so much insight and wisdom and fantastic stories. And it validates that we're all in this together that we're all having these feelings, these experiences, or we know someone close to us who is. And I think that's really, really the point of reaching out and finding each other. Yep, and waking up to this spiritual community we are all a part of. So if you guys have a question or story you want to share for our March Community Connections, you can email it to us, enlightenedempaths at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook at Enlightened Empaths. We would love to hear, as I mentioned before, we have a bunch of angel stories that came in after our Archangel show, and those were really fun. We can't wait to share them with you next month. And so if you have an angel encounter or a question about the angels, please feel free to share that with us and our listeners. And we've got a whole group of great shows coming up. We've got two wonderful guests to share with you in March and some other shows that we're putting together on guardian angels. So we really hope you keep tuning in and subscribe and listening. If you have a moment, please take a time out of your day to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people to find us or tell a friend to check out our podcast so we can grow this community of spiritually awakened empaths. Don't forget, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.